are listening to the Birth Bruja podcast, an extension of birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Here, friends, we get personal. We get political. We talk business. We talk shit. We talk pleasure. We learn and unlearn and find growth by embodying practices of healing and justice. We are your hosts. My name is Eric Guajardo Johnson, and my pronouns are she, they. And my name is Mickey McHenry. My pronouns are she, her. Let's dive in. You were listening to episode 27. My name is Ari Guajardo Johnson. My pronouns are she and they. And today is part one of a conversation around decolonized approaches to facilitation. As facilitators, we hold tremendous power and responsibility in what we teach and how we teach it. Even with the best of intentions, we may be unknowingly perpetuating harm through our choices of guest speakers, resource sharing, language, the experiences that are centered in our teachings, the experiences that are left out and more. When we talk about decolonized approaches to facilitation, we are talking about using facilitation as a tool to dismantle structures that perpetuate unbalanced power dynamics. We're talking about using facilitation as a place to value, center, and revitalize Black and Indigenous knowledge and approaches, while weeding out colonial ideologies such as white supremacy, patriarchy, homophobia, ableism, the separation of mind, body, and spirit, and so much more. In July of this year, I joined my good friend and colleague, Kingya, also known as Queer Birth Worker on social media, to teach a course called Decolonized Approaches to Facilitation. This was a four-week intensive where we supported the full spectrum of facilitators, folks who work within organizations and institutions, to folks who are community educators, independent contractors, folks who are able to produce curriculum without any institutional culture being pressed on them. As you can imagine with anything that is rooted in decolonial work, for many folk, their understanding of self was expanded and their ability to show up authentically in their professional offerings was deepened. In this episode, I am joined by my co-facilitator, Kingya, and Josie Rodriguez-Boucher, a participant from our last cohort. Our conversation centers what it is like practicing decolonized approaches to facilitation as community educators, and additionally, as community educators who primarily facilitate through online spaces. Kingya, their pronouns are they and them, is a genderqueer person of transmasculine experience, and their sexuality is queer as fuck. King is an intersectional feminist, and their work centers queer, trans, and non-binary folks' well-being through full spectrum of life experiences, including grief and loss, sex and pleasure. They also train intentional health and wellness practitioners on developing competencies to care for and to create safer and inclusive practices for queer, trans, and gender diverse people. 
Kinga has invested in decolonizing health and queering up reproductive justice. Josie Rodriguez Boucher, pronouns are they and them, is a queer non-binary Latinx fertility acupuncturist and queer reproductive health and justice advocate. Since 2008, they have been supporting folks with wombs to conceive with the help of traditional Chinese medicine and other ancient healing modalities. Josie's mission is to recenter queer, trans, and non-binary people of the global majority in the reproductive healthcare realm and beyond. And one final note before we dive in, throughout this episode, my little wiener dog was screaming her head off in the bedroom upstairs, so I apologize for any distraction that her little voice may have caused. And without further ado, friends, let's dive in. Josie, if you could start us off by telling us, what are some things about decolonial practice that have shaped the way you view yourself? Yeah, I love this question. There's been a lot of changes in how I view myself after doing this work or while doing this work. Um, But one of them is I used to see myself as a quote unquote expert, and that has really shifted quite a bit, you know, being more aware of where that came from as such a white supremacist colonizer construct. And so I'm noticing that I'm seeing myself now as more of someone with a lived experience and what my positionality is, what my privileges are, you know, in what ways I've experienced marginalization and how I bring those to groups that I facilitate. So I'm seeing myself as part of a whole, part of different communities and wanting to really strengthen those communities as opposed to where I used to kind of see it as strengthening my following or strengthening the size of my classes or the size of my patient load. It's been a really big shift in seeing myself as an individual versus seeing myself as part of a community or a whole. Love that answer so, so much. And also I relate to that shift as well. King Yao, friend, in the last four months, what about your decolonial practices have been shaping the way you view yourself? That's a great question. And also, yeah, thank you, Josie. You named so many things that I also can relate to um, so beautifully. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking about for myself is weaving in more around care and what care practices can look like for myself and being supportive of others, you know, making sure that we get that in there, right? Because I think that uh, sometimes we're so caught up in doing the work, like we want to do the work and part of the work is making sure that we take care of ourselves as well, right? And what that could possibly look like for people of various means. I think that in many of our spaces that we might've had conversations around even just decolonizing what self-care looks like and thinking about how we can lean into community and community support um, our people and for myself personally that part of not having to care for myself by myself right so leaning into community and, and asking for what i need and being okay with you know what i mean like people not having the capacity but me and being vulnerable enough to actually ask for whatever it is that i need whatever supports that i need and i think that it's something that I'm hoping that can be modeled for others. Because yes, we talk about a lot around 
mutual aid and we have them as like words right like i feel like there's these are kind of words you know what i mean in um, social justice spaces and whatnot and i have to go for myself right like what does it mean for me to reach out to which i have <laughs> to you specifically josie right for you know assistance with things what does it mean for me to reach out to you Erie, and say this is what's going on in my life right now right because i am more than the work that i'm putting out there and that's what we have to also be mindful of that we are more than what people see because otherwise what we're doing is just perpetuating this thing of us moving, 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 moving like little minions or something like that, you know, keeping this wheel going and producing stuff on Instagram or doing these offerings and whatnot, right? People see that and that's all that they're seeing. But in the background, myself and maybe others might be dealing with a lot of other personal issues and not pausing, right? I talk a lot about pausing, right? But we're not pausing for ourselves. Whenever we think about the effects of colonization, one of the things is being one individualistic and also around being productive. So mm -hmm. yes, right? How can I care for myself and ask for community support in very specific ways so that I'm being held and I feel like I'm being held rather mm -hmm. than whatever the alternative is. Ah, oh, King, yes, yes, echo so much also of what you said. One of the things that's coming to mind is how you specifically in the last four months I'm trying to do a timeline around this four months and Josie, I meant to say that too, just because knowing that mm. all of us in this conversation, decolonial practice is not something new. So I right. wanted to make it smaller for the scope. But um, yeah, in the last four months, Kia, you have been one of the biggest teachers for me in regards to showing how self-care is an aspect of embodied integrity. And I think a lot of times in the materialistic, capitalistic appropriation of the use self-care a lot of times it is viewed as like as individualistic and also as a luxury as decadent mm -hmm. and like yes it can be those things and also it is an embodiment of integrity and another embodiment teaching thing that you've taught me is the notion of slowing down and how self-care specifically when we reach out it requires that we slow down to be able to identify what are our needs, to mm. be able to figure out how can I communicate them. And then the one last bullet point in my brain is just when you shared about reaching out to others in regards to in like a peer way, but reaching out to folks in a like professionalized way, meaning people who are trained and or have lived experience in space holding because how a lot of times when we seek support from folks like those that gives us permission to take up all that space for ourselves versus going in there you know like if i were to seek josie support specifically around my pelvic floor health which i do need to um <laughs> you know being you know going to josie and producing a version of my story that has a lens right and the outcome is i'd only tell josie enough so that Josie continues to think of me in a certain way. Mm. Um, so all those lessons have actually been on my mind in regards to where I'm at personally and, and how it ties into this work. And I guess if I may jump into my thoughts on this question to meet both of y'all's vulnerability is I think I've shared a few times on and off on a Birth Bruja platform that this past year has been a continued journey of separation, uh, dissolving of a marriage, after eight and a half years, four miscarriages, multiple years of trying to have a baby, moving from California, the Bay Area, where I thought 
that was my land. I thought that was my people in regards to, you know, spending the rest of my, the rest of my life. So all these huge transitions and now I'm in a new place. And so again, that notion of self-care and integrity, like those are things that have been floating around. And then the other thing has been aspect of privilege. So one of the things about unlearning, which is what I think decolonial practice has really brought me is it's been a practice of actively unlearning is it's been me creating distance from aspect of culture that I grew up in aspects of mainstream culture distance from certain relationships that were not serving who I want to be and what I want to bring forth to the world. And candidly, that was a lot easier to do when I was away from my family and away from where I grew up. There is some comfortability in being anonymous, you Mm -hmm. know, like having a blank slate of being in a new location and being back in Michigan, back a lot of good memories and a lot of challenging memories. I am reminded of how privilege is still privilege, even if we choose not to utilize it, Mm. specifically when it's privileged through proximity So there's family members that may have access, or I'll speak less broadly. I have family members who have access to money, family members who have access to places of influence, all sorts of resources through the family web. And it's super complicated Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of toxicity. There's a lot of manipulation. There's, you know, complicated shit that's wrapped up in a lot of systemic oppression culture. And I've separated myself from those relationships for multiple reasons. And being back here, now I'm realizing that part of my work, and I'm just speaking for me and my intersections of identity, not for anyone else. um, But now I'm navigating with boundaries and emotional intelligence. How can I connect across differences to access and to relate with spaces of privilege Mm -hmm. where I'm not harming myself to do that, but where I'm actively, yeah, I'm actively utilizing because I've just been realizing how it's kind of bullshit to be cutting aspects of access to privilege off just because it allows me to sink more comfortably into this version of myself Mm -hmm. or this like concept of self that is based on, you know, being down. I don't know what you're saying. Like, yeah, hopefully that makes sense. And it's really vulnerable and it's really uncomfortable and it's complicated as fuck, but that has just been something I've been really revisiting is my understanding of privilege and access mm-hmm. and how I utilize it and how I don't. That was a lot of words. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So on that notion, I guess, of being vulnerable, right? The notion of having a work in progress where it might be sticky and whatnot. Josie, unless Kinga, you got burning words off the bat, but Josie, would you mind speaking to what are some areas that you're still working on, like Mm. working on understanding or or working on integrating? Yeah. In terms of decolonizing facilitation or just in terms of like decolonizing in general? Good question. For this question, I invite you to speak more broadly outside okay. of facilitation, but if you want to bring it into facilitation. Okay. Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. I think something that's really up for me right now in terms of decolonizing everything is how I have viewed myself as white most of my life because I've grown up in white spaces. And over the past 
few years, I've been unlearning that whiteness and, and learning that, oh, that was the work of whiteness to erase everything else besides whiteness. And so then I'm seeing even like childhood memories and experiences through a completely different lens. And I'm seeing like, oh, I was a brown kid in a sea of whiteness. And the way that they tried to erase that was like shocking and also harmful. And so, you know, kind of unpacking that and reevaluating my relationship to whiteness and my proximity to whiteness, my relationship to the privileges that that brings has been painful and also really liberating at the same time. It has required me to put some really strong boundaries in place, which has been painful, but also necessary. And kind of along the lines of what you were saying, Ari, like how to use my privilege, you know, how can I use that as a bridge to kind of connect communities together and bring resources to communities rather than be a gatekeeper around knowledge and privilege and and that sort of thing. So it's been a big knot that I've been sort of untying over the past few years of like, where did my heritage get lost and how can I pick up that string? Ah, yes. And I (laughs) hope to have a series actually talking with mixed folks on this complexity. Yeah. Um, That, yeah, I think decolonial practice for sure has taught me the importance of leaning into complexity and mm-hmm. leaning into the gray area and also identifying how identity is an evolving thing that changes changes who we're talking to, where we're geographically residing. And on the notion of whiteness, yeah, I think for mixed folks, you know how there's like spiritual bypassing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there's like political bypassing or theoretical bypassing where people try to approach these conversations like it's black and white Mm -hmm. good and bad as a way to chop off complexity totally right and there's a lot of folks that are like oh well i'm latinx and i'm light-skinned so i'm white and so therefore that's not for me right okay so this concept of reclaiming ancestral heritage you're not going to engage with that you're not going to learn about the history because of your melanin ratio versus your parents you know what i mean and then on the flip side light-skinned folks of color being like, oh, well, I'm brown. And then leaning into the marginalization aspect without giving any room right. to their their embodiment of privilege. And then lastly, it's just so wild to me that folks, especially brown folks, Latinx folks, mm-hmm. how it's either or, how it's yeah. like, y'all, like we can be talking about how brown folks can be white passing, mm-hmm. have light skin, and also really lean into how colorism impacts our communities and impacts our ability to have horizontal hostility. Decolonial practice really shows the both and. Totally. In regards to this collective liberation, rather than just right like a hierarchy of shit. Yeah, for sure. Which is also yeah. from whiteness, like categorization and hierarchy and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm having all the feelings of this conversation. <laughs> um, Kenya. Now, before you even jump into me, like just listening to you, Josie, sharing that, I was like, holy shit. I like wanted to like jump in even as you were speaking, just the mere thought of that whole erasure that you thought of yourself as a white person. That mm-hmm. you thought, you know, you mean they identified as a white person 
and how that ties into, for me, uh, the whole question is what was it like being raised then, right? And is it accidental that you right. thought you were white, right? And how wild that is. And I'm glad that the two of you are able to, to speak to it because it's not an experience that I, I share with y'all as my identity. But I was thinking of, you know, even in spaces where I'm hosting or I'm facilitating or whatever, I'm inviting people in and I'm like, so people who are from the global majority or people who are identified as black, indigenous, or people of color, where people are coming back and asking me, and it is, right? White, past, and Latinx people who are asking me, so can I... Is it me? And I'm like, that's not for me to say, right? Mm -hmm. It will never be for me to say, right? So either you claim it, right, or you don't. I'm not the gatekeeper of such, not the gatekeeper of anything, but I'm also sensing the hesitation. And I can't imagine what that would feel like to not be able to name and hold that identity mm -hmm. as being someone who is a person of the global majority and how that is such a violation, like all of the things that white supremacy and colonization has done to us yeah. collect, like collectively right where either we have people who are like straight up white pretending that they are black or whatever it is that they're doing and writing books about their experience and, and, and joining the NAACP or we have people who are like here and they're like trying to figure out especially if they don't have access to parents who are actually willing to speak about certain things or family members or I'm just thinking of, of all the layers of that project to ensure that we, even when I use a language around people of the global majority and I'm in space of saying that we make up a majority of the world's population, that white supremacy has done such a huge project that they will have people who are white passing and mm -hmm. are people of color, but they will can't name it because the numbers, we want the numbers to, to look a particular way. We need to have more white people. Right. Right. So the length that we will go through in order to have people not know who they are and also have the support of family totally. to, up to uphold this. Yeah, totally. And I think the predominant emotion that I felt as I was untangling this was anger, just so much anger, because it was like I felt like someone had, you know, just pulled the fleece over my eyes, like like I was just. I felt betrayed. I felt so betrayed because I was like, man, no one told me <laughs> or, you know, it just was, there was no one else in my community like me. I just felt like, why didn't you say anything? Like, why didn't anyone tell me? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I felt that one. Talking about this as individuals, this is, this is a lot. We're three people who are continuing to understand ourselves and the world while also holding space for others, while also maintaining a, a digital platform where we are sharing. It's hard to share vulnerability while also trying to fit the Instagram <laughs> snapshot, while the also square. trying to, exactly, <laughs> while also sharing a thing of vulnerability and then trying to put a bow on it so that it's like a teaching moment, you know, <laughs> like. Totally. King, yeah, before I shift into mm. focusing more explicitly on facilitation, was there anything else you wanted to add about your areas that you're working on understanding or integrating? Yeah, the areas that I'm working on are what I mentioned earlier around vulnerability and and care. 
when I say care, I mean specifically I'm caring for myself, you know, in the ways that uh, I probably would not have before. So that is work for me. That is like a huge project for me. And um, we talk about what decolonization is. We talk about that aspect that there's community and we're meant to like pour into the community, but also for me that was missing is the part of how to go into community and say, I actually need this help, right? Like I need to be supported and not wanting to be this person. I don't want to be this person that looks like I have it all together, right? I don't want to have like this Instagram or that's the only space that I am or, you know, wherever it is I'm facilitating, right? Where people see me as this, whatever it is that they see me as and not see me as the whole being that I am that also lives in a body that is in chronic pain or the other things that are going on in my life as far as like co-parenting um, or not even co-parenting, but, you know, distance parenting, right? Like these are aspects of my, my life that are huge for me, right? So yes, I bring and I share stories or little things, you know what I mean, or about my life as a genderqueer person of trans experience who is black and, 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 right? And also there's other parts of me that also, and I'm not sharing it because I want people to, I don't know, I don't want to make a teachable moment out of it, as you mentioned, right? Like I don't want it to be, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm selective as to what it is I do share. However, sometimes I feel called to because I think that it's important for people to see that people are whole ass people, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, so for me, that integration involves sharing that I ask for help and for me to also do the work of asking for help in, you know, in itself. And also what it means also in relationships, like, you know, my, my personal relationships. So that is the part that I'm integrating in more now of stopping and thinking about what my actual needs are rather than me being disappointed when my needs are not being met. And they're not being met because I didn't ask. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't ask because I didn't stop and think about what they are. And also I, I'm saying that period, that full, that's a full stop. However, then if there's in there something that also helps with me being in community, then that's also a bonus. Right. But I think that it's enough for me to say that in my personal life and in my personal relations, that that is really something that I'm focusing and needing to spend some attention on because that area is worthy in of itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Without it being a lesson for the larger community. Yes, I'm hoping that y'all will get something out of it. But me, I'm also important. And I don't think that that is the same thing of the colonial idea of individualism. I believe that there's a distinct difference because in there, I do still feel connected to my community. And I cannot be connected to my community if I'm not showing up as a vulnerable person also, right? So maybe that is how I'd share where, how I'm integrating right now. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. So continuing to move through this conversation, let's focus a little more explicitly on facilitation. So in the decolonial approaches to facilitation workshop, it was a four week journey. We started off giving some foundational understandings of decolonial practice. We gave some foundational strategies for facilitation. And then the last module, it was a workshop where folks were able to brainstorm to figure out how to implement 
these strategies into their particular kinds of facilitated practices. So Josie, in those four weeks, what were some of the takeaways or what what were some of the newer connections that stand out for you? Oh my gosh, I had so many. I think one of the main ones that stuck out for me was to avoid hand-holding and how that stems from having a savior complex of wanting to do the work for them and not letting them do their own work. I think I really struggle with that. I think also that comes out in my parenting, honestly, where I just want to like do everything for them and save them from every negative experience and just like pave the way, you know, that's been a lesson for me in general, I think to, to hold back a little bit and to take a step back and, and let there be space, not only for, you know, participants who show up in my courses and patients that I see one-on-one in my private practice, but not only for them to do their own work, but also in terms of like online facilitation to have space for things like bio breaks or grounding before we start some sort of centering or grounding or connection, you know, community connection, pausing for processing emotions when they come up leaving space for other people to speak, especially people of the global majority. So, you know, just leaving space, I think in general is something I'm learning and it felt very uncomfortable for me at first to take steps back and to leave space for those things. And now I will say, you know, recently I was in a facilitated space where they didn't do any of that. And it felt so, um, I was like, wait, I need to pee. <laughs> like, you know, there, I was like kind of waiting for them to stop or pause or, you know, and it was like several hours of a training. And it was just like, oh my gosh, no one else does this. You know, there's no space for anything. It's just there's an agenda, there are slides they have to get through, and there's the teacher, the students. It was very traditionally colonized space. And so learning how to undo all that and create a space that feels good for people to show up in. That's been one of my main takeaways. There's so many things I wanted to interrupt and just jump in. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. I'll start with the last one. Like it's almost waiting for permission, waiting for them because we go in back into these spaces, even with all the spaces that we've been in where there's been more intentionality around setting up that space where you know that you can trust your body and trust what you need to and, and meet those needs. Whereas now we go back into certain spaces and we go, we fall right back in it and we're waiting for permission to go to the bathroom. Totally. Right? So imagine yeah. that we can go right back, even with what we know, we can go right back into asking or waiting for permission to listen to our body. That we will sit there for whatever because they've not given us permission at the beginning. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you go back to the other thing that you said, and I'm, all I'm thinking about is yes that and and parenting because Mm -hmm. there's trust involved when you don't do the things for them right as a parent myself that we trust that they're going to figure it out they're going to make a mistake perhaps but trusting that they're going to figure it out right that hand holding is it's big and it seeps into so many parts of just our lives so yeah thank you for naming that (laughs) i was doing all the head nods and took everything out of me not to jump in and you know yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. King, yeah. So this is our second time teaching. 
decolonial approaches to facilitation. And it's actually been seven or eight months since the first time that we've taught this. Did you have any new connections that came during this time around? I think that the, the second time around, one, I love facilitating with you. So just to name that. And I love it not just because, <laughs> not because, you know, you're you and, you know, you're awesome and whatnot, but even the background stuff, like the stuff that people don't see, like the meetings that we have and the ways that we bounce ideas back and forth and like just the feeling that I have of doing something with you. And as we're working through putting this thing together, I feel like there's just so much love there. And then when we show up, I feel like people feel it, Mm -hmm. right? I feel like people get that. And hopefully that is something that even because one of the things that we do talk about in the four weeks is one is embodying whatever it is that you're, you know, this feeling like going into your body as to the space that you're trying to create for other people, but also for yourself. How do you want to feel in it? Because I think that people will get that. And I think that is something that how could we ever in our blurb that we say, about this training, how could we ever be able to articulate that as a selling thing? It's a feeling, right? However, it is really, I would say maybe even more important than whatever the content is because what we're hoping is that people will strive for that feeling because I feel like it speaks to the whole thing. I don't know, I feel like I'm rambling, but I don't, I'm hoping that you get it. So when we're even there and, and showing that we're not going for perfection. We're saying fuck you to perfectionism, right? So they see us, you know, when we're saying, you know, show up, whatever it is. And I've not eaten, so I've got my, my nuts and whatever it is. And, you know, while Aria's, you know, talking, I'm also eating on camera, right? I may not be laying down. However, I feel good when I look on the screen and I do see that people are lying down and taking care of themselves. Or when people show up and... Because they know that even if they're not feeling well, whatever it is, that we're not going to ask them to perform anything, that they're going to be able to show up in whatever capacity that they're able to, but they're showing up because mm-hmm. they know that they can, and they know that we're not going to judge them. That is something we could never put as a selling point about this training. And I'm hoping that that is something that it carries over into the spaces that they are holding. And I feel like that is one way that we are chopping up this thing of, you know, and dismantling, how can we hold people and create this container that people can show up as their full selves? And also, even when we're saying like, you know, the breakout rooms or people have an opportunity to have like smaller connections with people. Mm-hmm. And maybe if they're not feeling comfortable to share in a larger group setting, that they might do it there. And also, we also offer the options of if you don't even want to go, if you want to hang back with us, that you can do that as well. We're not at all saying that we have it all figured out. What else do we know about ourselves? And we're also wish that could be in spaces that we're in that maybe other people might get something from that they could bring into their spaces. So it's always us wanting to offer a little bit more mm-hmm. because this work is continuous, you know what I mean? Of, of, of chopping up and making sure that we're doing better. And it's not better as in good, bad, blah, blah, whatever it is, right? but we're incorporating more things that hopefully is in the body. Like for me, everything must be in the body. So it's not like throwing out a lot of information. How do we pause more? You know what I mean? If I was to say to Ari, 
how about this time we even pause even more, right? What else? I know. Look at your face. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) How could we pause even more? How could we give more space? And for me, even when I'm in other people's spaces as a guest or as a participant, these are the things that are important to me. And I think that we are so used to being, especially any of us who have gone to these secondary, whatever education places where we have been lectured to, we've been given lots of books to read, lots of articles, lots of whatever it is, as if that justifies or makes something more valid, the experience of the the one, the money exchange, or how I view the teacher. They must be very clever because they gave me 15 readings you know, for this thing and me showing up having this 15 readings of being that, you know what I mean? It says so much, right? What happens if we have more time just to explore visualizing what the space could feel like? Pause. <laughs> do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Right. Yeah. And going into our body as to how do we want to feel? So when I show up and I think when Erie shows up, even with this other stuff that are going on in our lives at that moment, we're not going in feeling like we need to perform perfectionism. We're not needing to perform anything, right? We could also say, which we have done, we need to cancel class this week because things are going on in our motherfucking life, right? We're going to add it on next week, but we need mm-hmm. to do this, prioritize our own care right now. What happens when we give that permission to ourselves and people are able to give that permission to them as well? This actually seamlessly, I think, has us circling back to one of the first things that Josie said in this conversation, which is the notion of, actually, I'm not even going to try to regurgitate your words, Josie, but but Kinga, when you talk about that pause, when you talk about that feeling, for me, what that does is that acknowledges the co-creation of the space. Because when we pause, we're tuning into that collective presence. We're able to tune into the unique chemistry of the group. This time around, we created more space. And what happened were the participants brought so much nuance and depth. And folks expressed things in such a perfect way that it was better than anything as a facilitator we could have done right mm-hmm. or, or could have led so it, it was it was it was power and it was collective power as a facilitator shifting this this colonialistic expectation that i need to be everything in this space to it being a predominantly collaborative space like that's what shifted that empowerment that alignment feeling i think that's what that's how i would describe that feeling in my body um that that kenya touched upon I have one more question for y'all and it's going to be a sharp, sharp transition. (laughs) And that is, is for all of us, there are still barriers and there are still struggles in applying these decolonial strategies to our work. And Josie, please share all of the barriers and all of the struggles you've ever experienced. In your life. In your life. Not four months, not the last four months, in your life. Go. Okay. Yeah. I mean, something real specific that I'm struggling with is food recommendations. I feel like that's one of the value offerings that I have 
that people can do on their end because I can't give them acupuncture. I can't give them herbs if it's virtual. And so I feel like the thing I can give to them that's like a tangible thing they can do on their end is food recommendations that can be used like therapeutically and in a way to bring their fertility into balance so that they can have higher success in conceiving. And so I'm like, how do I do this in a way because food is so tricky. And so I'm trying to figure out how to do this in a way where I well, even in my one-on-one, you know, when I'm working with patients to ask them for consent before I give them food recommendations. And this is what I learned from Dr. Sand Chang, who's amazing and was on my podcast. And so I'm navigating that in my one-on-one private practice. And then also in my online program, Fertile, what I'm playing around with right now is calling, you know, they have like a sheet that they fill out at the end based on their traditional Chinese medicine diagnosis, you know, things that they've learned throughout Fertile to do. So it's sort of a customized fertility worksheet that they fill out. And so rather than having like a food recommendation section based on their their elements, their imbalances, you know, where they are in their cycle, I'm calling it nourishment instead. So it's like, how else can you nourish yourself besides food so that people who don't want to partake in the food recommendation part of it can still participate in other ways of nourishing themselves? Because there's just, there's so much around, and I think, you know, especially in Chinese medicine where food recommendations can become restrictive. And so you don't want to add to that harm that people can experience on their fertility journey. So that's kind of the main sticking point that I'm dealing with decolonizing that in my facilitation. And I think too, it's like kind of grappling with like, well, I want to make sure I'm offering value. And so I, it feels hard to take something away or to not to not have something concrete to give people who sign up for my offerings. Um, and again, to create that space, it's really hard. And I want to say that you all do it, King and Ari, you do this so well. And this is something that is, as a facilitator, it's so hard to walk that line of offering value while creating space for a co-creation to occur it's like an art. (laughs) So even just being in the space with you two is I think what was the most beneficial for me to just watch how you do it, to be experiencing how you hold space and how you create a container like that. Because boy, I feel like it's hard to talk about. You kind of have to see it and experience it. I think that Josie kind of hit it, you know, all of it, which is trust. I think that there's a lot of trust that's involved, but it asks us to trust. There's a lot of trust in believing it. I love that you rename, or not, I don't I think it's just a rename, because rename sometimes just means rebranding the same shit, right? But even thinking about nourishing, right? So thinking about ways that we can invite people to trust themselves, mm-hmm. that they have their resources within them, right? To name certain things. Trusting ourselves as facilitators. You know, when we pause, that there are so much brilliance that's already in the space, right? When we say that we're co-creating space and collaborating we need to leave that spaciousness to trust that the wonders of all the things that are going to happen in a space is there. So I think that that is, that's it. So here we are, you know, we trusted one another <laughs> that we all have valuable things to share about our experiences in that four weeks and beyond. Right. And I'm going to trust that this is a good place for us to wrap up. 
It is <laughs> such a beautiful place. And on that note, Josie, thank you so much for joining us. Would you please share for folks how they can get a hold of you and learn more about your work? Sure. My website is intersectionalfertility.com. And you can find me on Instagram as well at Intersectional Fertility. Thanks for listening to the Birth Bruja podcast. Be sure to check out show notes for a list of resources mentioned during today's episode. Are you interested in learning more about the intersections discussed today? Visit birthbruja.com. We are an online educational platform devoted to decolonial approaches to healing and reproductive care. Offerings range from pre-recorded courses, eBooks, live workshops, and more. Want to keep this podcast running? First, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. Second, visit birthbruja.com and check out our store to purchase apparel with one of many badass designs. Until next time, friends, thank you for all the ways you show up in this world. Blessings and gratitude.